0: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot
1: Horror Story is a podcast about strange and mysterious true horrors. My name is Edwin Covarrubias, host and producer of Horror Story. In the show, I have an episode called There's a Stranger in Your Walls. And it's about a woman that moved out of her home because she thought it was being haunted. But the truth happen to be even scarier than the ghosts. Other stories dive deep into the supernatural, like the one of the most infamous cases of real ghosts, called The Haunting in San Pedro. But if you're into mysteries, learn about the pilot who disappeared in the sky. All of these and more are available on Horror Story right now, with more episodes coming out every single week. You can search for the podcast by typing in Horror Story on your podcast app right now. The show is the one with the yellow letters i'll see you over there on horror story the following
2: program is a production of chilling entertainment and the creative team at chilling tales for dark nights and a proud member of the simply scary podcast network visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of three rounds of frightening fiction about unusual acquisitions, digital disturbances, and creepy copies. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly-lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of Eric Dodd, L. Chan, and Rachel Wesley are voice talents Ryan Borsis, Otis Jiry, and Jordan Lester. Now, get your ticket ready, take your seat in our theater of the minds, and Brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. (laughs) Our first tale tonight was written by Eric Dodd, also known by his online moniker, Unksmal, and is voiced by Ryan Borses. In it, our protagonist gets far more than they bargained for, when they scoop up a gently used couch from the street. You know there's a saying these days, if something is free, you're the product. You've been warned. (laughs) Without further ado, I present to you, Curb Furniture.
3: I ignored Jesse's 15th text. This is heavy, you jerk. I was far less concerned about Jesse's potential hernia than my position on the leaderboards. The stupid 14-year-old Dr. Dread 43 refused to move away from the turret, and I was getting destroyed. The game stuttered for a moment, and my connection dropped. Fucking Comcast, I muttered, and shoved back from my desk. My phone buzzed again. God damn it, Jesse. I sighed, shoved my feet into some sandals, and walked out the door. Jesse and Kenny were shoving and grunting at a truly massive couch that was wedged in the stairwell. That thing's gonna kill you both, I said. Jesse flashed one of his trademark movie star smiles at me, then flipped me off. Jesse was perfect. Wealthy parents, perfect curly blonde hair, abs of a demigod, genius IQ, and a sweet southern drawl that melted panties at ten yards. Most of the time I hated him. We had been friends since high school. "'I think I shit myself!' Kenny grunted. "'Come on, you lazy fuck, help us!' I kicked off my sandals so I'd have a better grip on the old wood flooring, then wedged myself under part of the sofa and shoved. Slowly, with much sweat and profanity, the three of us got the sofa into the apartment. We kicked aside half-full boxes and the three metal folding chairs, and shoved the sofa against the wall opposite the huge flat screen Jesse had bought on a whim one weekend.' The sofa was long enough to stretch from one wall of the apartment to the other. It completely filled the space like the obelisk from 2001 except horizontal. Its fabric was a deep red, whirled and mottled with darker red that was nearly black. Each of its eight thick legs were carved to resemble claws, clutching spheres atop pedestals. Along back of the sofa, nearly obscured by the overstuffed cushions, was a solid length of dark oak, intricately carved in flowing geometric patterns. Dude, this is going to be awesome, Kenny said, scratching his beard. Kenny was, in a lot of ways, the physical opposite of Jesse. His hair, though curly, was an unruly mess. He was generally round with a doughy face covered with more neglect than beard. Appearances aside, Kenny had an infectious, boy-like charm that made him a great fun to be around. Come on, let's try it out. Kenny found the motherfucker an assortment of remote controls that he had taped to the outside of a huge Jack Daniels bottle, on my desk. Jesse grabbed us each beers from the beer fridge, and we all sat down on the sofa. Jesse's flat screen turned on, and Kenny's PlayStation 3 started playing the so familiar dum dum da 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 dum -dum -dum strains of the intro to Star Wars Episode Four through my AV unit speakers. The sofa really was comfy, a significant improvement over metal folding chairs or the hardwood floors. The cushions were large and overstuffed, but not too soft. With the three of us sitting on it, there was still enough room for another two or three people. This is pretty nice, guys, where'd this thing come from? I asked. We totally snagged it off the curb! Kenny said. I jumped up. Aw man, that's gross, there could be lice or bed bugs or something. No way! Kenny said. I checked it out, there's no bugs or anything. Kenny got down on the floor and knocked on one of the sofa's large wooden legs. This is solid oak, kiln-dried. You can't get furniture like this anymore. Well, you you can, maybe, but you'll pay 20 grand or more. This baby has eight-way hand-tied springs, and I don't know what the fabric is, but it's high-end stuff. I don't know how old it is, but my guess is at least 80, maybe 100 years old. As far as I knew, Kenny had never worked for a furniture store or dealt with antiques, but he had a talent for research and a huge retention for random facts and you guys just found this on the side of the road? I said. Kenny stood up. Yeah, it was down on Planchard and Third along with a bunch of other stuff. You know how they set out stuff when people get evicted. I saw it this morning when I was going to class and had Jesse help me pick it up after. It's fine, man. If it had been out in the rain or something, we'd know by the smell, Jesse said I did the sniff test all over it and under the cushions. Smells like old perfume or something, but not anything bad. We sat back down on the sofa, drank our beer, and watched a movie that we'd all seen a hundred times. I noticed the smell then, faint, like tobacco and flowers or perfume. I didn't sleep well that night. I had my first nightmare. Not the first nightmare of my life, but the first real one. The first one about the sofa. In my dream it was somehow alive. The sofa's mottled red fabric glistened like raw, wet muscle, stretched taut over bones that groaned and ground against one another. There was something unsettlingly sexual about the way the muscles flexed against each other. I I saw my hand reach out to caress a cushion. It was warm, almost hot to the touch, and it felt very good. I snapped awake. My heart was racing. I felt an indescribable sense of dread. I looked at my phone, 5am, way too early to wake up, but too late to get any rest before my alarm went off at 6. I threw on a robe and shuffled to the kitchen. I nearly dropped my cereal bowl when I saw Kenny sitting on one of our mismatched kitchen chairs. the hell are you doing up? I asked. He looked up at me as if surprised that I was standing there. Insomnia. Happens sometimes, I just couldn't get comfortable on my bed, so I thought maybe I'd go sleep on the sofa." He pointed into the gloom of the living room. Looks like Jesse beat me to it. He sighed, stood up, and walked to his room, leaving me to eat cereal to the sounds of Jesse snoring in the dark. I was a wreck that day, and the next, and the next. Earlier and earlier every night I would wake up to the same dream, the sofa would somehow beckon to me. Some nights like a lover, and other nights like my mother, who passed away when I was 12. Every time I woke, sweating, breathing as if I'd run a marathon, I felt the same sense of dread. After the first night, I refused to get up. Instead, I stayed in my bed, willing myself to go back to sleep. Some nights, I heard Kenny walking around. On the other hand, Jesse seemed positively manic. He was upbeat. Chipper, even, in contrast to his usual surfer zen attitude. Been sleeping on the sofa, man, he said. Best sleep I ever had. Never felt better. But at night, through the thin wall separating the living room from my bedroom, I heard him whimpering in his sleep. Jesse brought a new girl, Jenny, over that Friday night. Jenny was thin, blonde, and insecure, another of Jesse's future ex-girlfriends. She laughed at everything he said and I don't believe she broke body contact with him the whole evening. We all sat on the sofa, drinking, smoking, and playing video games. As the night wore on, Jesse began to give us significant looks, so we staggered off to our rooms, leaving him with an increasingly affectionate Jenny. You better not stain the sofa, Kenny grumbled to me before closing the door to his room. I woke from another dream about the sofa. Something thumped against my wall. Ugh, I groaned. Another thump and a moan. Thump. Thump. Damn it, I said and rolled off my bed. I threw on a shirt and shorts and stumbled blearily out of my room, down the hall and into the living room. I tried not to look at Jesse humping some girl, but I did want to get his attention. Jesse, keep it down. It's late. Thump. In the dim blue glow of the flat screen, I saw Jesse straddling Jenny, arms locked around her throat. His swim team shoulders bunched and the tendons in his arms stood out like cables. Jenny's face was black, her eyes open and bulging, her tongue thick and bloated, protruding from her mouth. One arm thumped, weakly, against the wall. Holy fuck, Jesse, get off her! I ran to the sofa and shoved him as hard as I could. He didn't move. Jenny, wake up, help! Jesse turned to me eyes wide open but blank as the flat screen. He turned back to Jenny and gave a final wrenching squeeze. Her leg twitched and kicked once. I hooked an arm around Jesse's neck and pulled as hard as I could. Help! Get up now! He let go and I fell back against the floor with his weight on me. I kicked and shoved him off of me and onto the floor and scrambled away. The lights came on. Kenny stood in the hallway mouth agape. Jesse lay on the floor. Naked, staring up at the ceiling. Jenny's nude body sprawled on the couch, head tilted at an awkward angle, face a horrible purple-black. Jenny was listed as dead on the scene. Her neck had been totally crushed. A friend of a friend was interning at the coroner's office, and suggested that the coroner himself was impressed that Jesse had been able to shatter two neck vertebrae with his bare hands. The cops wouldn't tell us much. Other than that, Jesse was under psychiatric evaluation. Jesse hadn't spoken since that night and was completely unresponsive to questioning. Kenny began acting strangely, stranger than normal for Kenny. He spent most of his time at home sitting in a beanbag chair, staring at the sofa, writing notes in a battered old notebook. When he wasn't at home, he was gone, sometimes for days at a time. Two guys from his study group showed up looking for him after he missed class for the third session in a row. They had heard about Jesse, the whole town had, and wrote off Kenny's behavior to a coping mechanism. I began to dread returning home from class. The dreams were getting worse. The sight of the crimson sofa hunched in the dimness of early morning was often enough to rush me out of my apartment without breakfast. I told myself it was PhD stress. I told myself... That it had nothing to do with a piece of furniture in my living room. Kenny showed up at the bio lab one evening, clutching a thick notebook. I was staying late, working on my thesis. I was behind on my research, and the lack of sleep was getting to me. Jesse's dead, he said. What? How? I asked. His mom called me a few minutes ago. She said he killed himself. I thought he was in a psych ward. The cops say he strangled himself. How is that even possible? I don't know, man. They told his mom that they found him in his cell with his hands around his throat. But, but listen, that's not all I want to talk to you about. We need to get rid of the sofa, Kenny said. What the fuck are you talking about, Kenny? I'm serious, man. I, I've been doing some research on the sofa. I laughed and shook my head. Kenny waved his notebook at me. It was thicker now, ragged with newspaper clippings. It's all in there, take a look. I took the notebook and began leafing through it. Kenny sat at a workstation next to me. I got to thinking, where did that sofa come from? Like, originally, and why was it just sitting out on the curb like that? It's a really nice piece of furniture, so uh, I went back to where I found it. The apartment was vacant, so I called and told the landlady I wanted to rent it. Some Phi Delta girls had been renting it before. The landlady told me that... Dude, bad shit happened to the three girls who had that place before. The first one drove headfirst into a tree. No alcohol, or drugs, or anything. The second one went nuts. Like, clawed her own eyes out nuts. She's still locked up. The last one, though... Kenny shuddered. She was a babysitter. She locked herself and three kids in the family car and took a long drive inside the family garage. No note, nothing. Kenny pointed out some newspaper clippings. There's the obits, there, and some newspaper articles about the deaths. It gets worse, Kenny said, and wiped a slightly shaky hand across his forehead. I asked around and it turns out one of the frat guys in my Cal 3 class dated girl number two. The one who hit the tree? I nodded. Yeah, well, before they started dating, when he was still trying to get into her pants, he helped her pick up some furniture off the curb. A red sofa, I said. Yeah, he said it was a fantastic find. I had them tell me where they found it. That place was a nice old house. It was up for sale, so I called the owner, had him meet me for a showing. He said he'd inherited the place from his father, who passed away about two years ago said he'd sold all the original furniture but he'd put some of the stuff out on the curb. I laughed and told him i just found an awesome old red sofa on the curb just a few weeks ago. He laughed too and said it was probably his dad's and that he remembered how heavy it was when he picked it off off the curb the first time. He figured since he found the sofa on the curb it was only fitting to put it back there as a way to give back. He was all jovial and shit, till I asked him how his dad died, then he got all cold and said it was a family matter pretty much shoved me out the door." Kenny looked at me. Bet you can't guess who his dad was. No clue. Larry Munson. Oh, fuck. Munson had abducted, raped, and killed six young college girls over the course of three years. It was a town scandal, and an embarrassment for both the local cops and the FBI. Munson was 63 years old, far older than the normal profile for a serial killer. He never had any priors and didn't appear to have any tendencies before he started killing. I thought they blamed that on a brain tumor. Yeah, a brain tumor, Kenny said, or a fucking evil demon sofa. We both laughed for a moment, then stopped. I realized that both of us had glanced toward the door, toward our apartment, as if it might be listening. Anyway, before he kicked me out, I got Munson Jr. to tell me where he picked up the sofa. He said a lot of mean things about my mom, but he eventually told me he picked it up on Laurel Avenue. The building has gone now, but it was the site of a brothel. It was a nail salon for years, but everyone knew what was really happening there. got busted about four years ago as part of an international human trafficking sting. They found a bunch of bodies buried in the sub-basement. Apparently, the managers would retire employees who didn't perform up to standards. Kenny flipped a few pages in the notebook. Take a look at that, he said, pointing to a newspaper photo. The grainy newsprint showed the brothel manager's office, posh with expensive furniture, exotic plants, and a large overstuffed sofa. I bet it'd be red, if this were a color photo, I said. Got hard to track after that. Obviously, I couldn't talk to the brothel manager or any of the employees. The manager's in federal prison and most of the workers were deported. Then I thought... What if I just look for the worst things that happened in this town, then look for a sofa? Kenny pulled out a yellowed, glossy photo. No fucking way, man. This is too much. Every school kid in town can tell you who W.C. Malone was. He was our town's Al Capone, a small town gangster who ruled the whole county with a bloody fist from 1922 to 1928. Capone might have been wealthier and more high profile, but. Rumor had it that Capone himself was appalled at Malone's tactics. According to some sources, Malone invented the Colombian necktie, in which a victim's throat was slashed and his tongue pulled through the cut, leaving the victim to slowly drown in his own blood. Historical estimates put Malone's personal body count in the hundreds, and his gang's count approaching a thousand. Malone's reign of terror ended abruptly in 1928, when his girlfriend stabbed him to death with an ice pick. She went to trial for murder, but not a single juror voted against her. The photo showed W. C. Malone in his trademark white hat, grinning around a cigar. He was leaning against the overstuffed back of a sofa. If the photo had been in color instead of grainy newsprint, I would have bet the sofa would have been a deep, deep red. Kenny rubbed a hand across his unshaved face. What really gets me, man, is where did Malone find that sofa? Did he find it on a curb, too? What if that thing has always been curb furniture? Getting passed along, owner to owner, for nearly a hundred years. We need to get this thing out of our apartment, I said. We stood at the door to our apartment. Neither of us wanted to touch the knob. Just open it already, I hissed. Fine, Kenny muttered and twisted the knob. The door swung open into the short hallway that led to the living room. I flicked on the lights. The sofa sat against the wall. No demons flying out of the cushions, no witches. Just a big dumb piece of furniture, he said and chuckled nervously. I wedged the door open. Kenny grabbed one end of the sofa and I the other. We both lifted. The sofa was very, very heavy. Kenny took the lead walking backwards toward the door. By the time we got to the door, we were both exhausted and dripping with sweat. We set the sofa down for a moment. Turn it, like this, I said, gesturing with my hand. We'll have to angle it to get it into the hallway. Kenny grunted agreement. As I picked my end of the sofa up, something snagged my thumb. Ah, fuck, I yelled, and dropped my end. Kenny staggered back from his end. What, man, what? He shouted, eyes panicky white. Nothing, I said. There's tacks under the edge. One of them must have got my thumb. I held my thumb up to the light. The wound was superficial but bleeding. I watched as the drops splattered onto the sofa's mottled red surface. The fabric seemed to absorb the blood greedily. I pressed my thumb against the padded arm. My blood didn't seem to smear into the fabric. It felt cool and very nice. Snap out of it, man! Kenny said. He was shaking my arm. You've been staring at the sofa for a few minutes. I shuddered, suddenly repulsed by the thing. Let's get this bitch out of here, angle it up and out. Right, then it's a few feet to the stairway, then a straight shot out the door. Kenny grimaced and grabbed his side of the sofa again. We twisted and shoved and moments later had the sofa filling the length of the hallway. I'll go down first, just follow my lead, he said. The cut. Should have been a warning. I should have known what was going to happen. We both should have. I've gone over this part a hundred times, a million times. And this is what I still remember happening. I had the sofa by the end, arms braced around the heavy oak legs. Kenny had a similar hold. He called out the steps. One. Two, three, four, five. At six, the sofa twisted. It rippled like a living thing bucking in one wild thrash, ripping itself from my hands. Kenny fell backwards, skidding down the remaining stairs. The sofa fell after him. No, I must be honest. The sofa leaped after him. Its narrow edge crushed his skull like an eggshell. I saw this all as I fell forward to land on the upturned sofa. Cops, EMTs, neighbors. Nobody saw the sofa. I suffered a severe concussion, a fractured ankle, and a broken wrist. The nurses, and eventually the cops, told me the stairs collapsed. They said the property management company was accepting full responsibility. They offered me condolences. Condolences for what? The only thing I could think of was the sofa. I didn't even think about Kenny until later. I kept having migraines. The doctors said they were from the concussion. The nightmares got worse. Every night, I dreamed about the sofa. The cops quit talking to me. The migraines made concentrating difficult. I could barely walk. I had no place to go. My apartment building was still under investigation, so I slept in a closet in the bio lab. Finally, after a particularly bad night, I realized one morning that I was standing in the lobby of the police station screaming about a sofa. One of the police officers recommended psychiatric care, I agreed and checked myself into a facility. Therapy helped, maybe it was the drugs, maybe it was just being away from my situation. After a month or so I felt better or at least well enough to leave, as per facility policy I had to meet with the director before I left the facility. Dr. Mahmoud met me at the door to his office. He was shorter than me, but had a kind face that somehow matched his voice. "'I hear you feel it's time to leave us?' he said. "'Yes, sir,' I smiled. "'I'm really feeling a lot better now.' "'In that case, let's do our exit interview,' he said, and walked around to his desk chair. He gestured behind me. "'Please?' Have a seat. I turned, and my smile slipped from my face. This is my new sofa. It's a beautiful antique. I found it on the curb just last week. How could someone just leave something so beautiful on the curb? I can assure you, it is very comfortable.
0: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
2: I hope you enjoyed Curb Furniture, as written by Eric Dodd, a.k.a. Unksmal, and voiced by Ryan Borsis. Up next, we've got a second sinister story for you, as written by author L. Chan and performed by Otis Jiry, host of the Scary Stories Told in the Dark podcast. In it, we learn the hard way that technology isn't a tool just for us mere mortals, and there are things far worse than viruses and malware lurking between the lines of binary code. Without further ado, I present to you Digital Edition.
4: Joe reacted to the chime of the incoming email as a mother would to the cry of a child. His fingers danced a complicated flamingo across the keyboard, accompanied by the clacks of the strikes of his fingertips. There was but a single new message, winking at him, from Alan, one of his colleagues down at the department. He sighed. No subject header and a huge attachment to boot. A twitch of his index finger brought the email up. No content either, nothing but a single mysterious file. Nothing recognizable in the file name, just a string of nonsense numbers. Another click would have opened the file. Joe would have. He almost did. Of all the times to trigger one of those banal reminders from IT. His finger was heavy on the mouse button. As he drew the translucent ghost of the email from his inbox and held it over the trash icon, he imagined it squirming there like some sort of wriggling bug, but he didn't let go. He'd have to ask Alan about it the next day. He strode confidently through the quiet corridors of the library office. Located in the bowels of the building, this was where old books went to die. Silence wasn't a rigidly enforced rule down here. It was a shroud, coating the place even more thoroughly than the dust. The idea behind the conversion project was simple. Expand access to the university's considerable repository of knowledge. Democratize and digitize it all. It would save the university a bundle when the books were evicted from the premises shipped off to some off-site stores to molder and rot. Their erstwhile homes converted into shiny new offices. There were a few teams on the conversion project, Alan led one of them, working on cataloging, scanning, tagging, and bagging. Alan and his small team were working on some particularly strange texts. A mismatched team, to be sure, Gordon was a department veteran, counting down the days to retirement. With his spindly arms and little potbelly, he reminded Joe of a starving tick. Kimberly was a fresh-faced young lady in her mid-twenties. Her hair dyed an unnatural pink. The buttons on her clothes holding in rolls of flesh straining at cheap cloth. And Alan, of course. He and Joe had entered the administration at around the same time, A lucky break had given Joe a slight head start in his career above Alan, the smarter of the two, and never afraid to let Joe know it. They'd been friends at the onset, but not so much anymore. Alan's team was working on something particularly dark. One of the older professors had been an avid picker, known to scavenge the many yard sales and antique shops up and down the New England coast. He had a particular morbid focus on the unsavory past of the region, and his collection reflected that. The man was long gone, dead by his own hand. He had been indulging in a little action on the side with one of his teaching assistants, an affair that went sour in a spectacular fashion. The scandal rocked the university at the time, ending with his hand curled around a bottle of pills the dried vomit crusting on his papers. Digitizing that esoteric collection was both daunting and futile. Joe needed Alan's keen attention to detail, and Alan's career, in Joe's opinion, needed the kind of handbrake that could be afforded by chasing down a pointless project. Alan's strange email had reminded Joe that he had been meaning to check up on the team for some time, Joe rapped on Alan's office door a little harder than he had meant to. The long walk down had given him time to ruminate over the slipping schedule. His armpits chaffed against the sodden folds of his shirt, compounding his annoyance at the mocking silence from behind the door. He barged in, the door swinging open to reveal a cramped office, books piled high, concealing much of the darkened room. The light from the corridor ventured hesitantly inwards, reluctant to illuminate more than a small portion. The switch by the door clucked at him irritably, telling him the lights were out. He turned to go but paused at the sound of something stirring deep in the room. Alan, he called. Joseph. The response was breathy, a sigh almost. Joe felt his anger from a moment ago dissipate, like so much mist before the morning sun. Fear lurked below uncomfortably perched on his stomach and blocking the back of his throat. He took a step further into the room, careful to stay in the tiny triangle of light. Hey man, I just uh, came down to check on your team to see if you had any problems with the server. No problems, we have everything we need. There wasn't just the sound of Alan's voice in the room. The other man was moving about in the dark, and beyond that there was a softer sound, a tiny scratching noise. Writing. The man was writing something. You sent me something strange last night. I didn't know what to do with it. You still have it? Alan's voice boomed thick with anger. Joe took an involuntary step back. His heel caught the edge of a thick book on the floor, and he steadied himself against the doorframe. Don't open it. Never look at it. The voice was almost beyond the range of his hearing. Soft. Far too soft. Joe leaned further in. Don't look at me. Get out! Get out! The hidden man's voice rose higher and higher until he was nearly screaming. Joe stumbled back out of the room, stricken by the oral onslaught. Joe was glad then for the silence and light of the corridor. In his haste, he kicked the book that he'd nearly tripped over out of the room. He bent over to pick it up, thinking to nudge it back into the office. He had just picked up the dusty tome and turned around when the door slowly shut itself in front of him. The tumblers fell into place, sealing the door. Joe scooped up the book and fled. What had Alan been working on? He was almost certainly off the deep end. Drugs are worse, thought Joe. He'd have to report this. The thought of petty administrative revenge calmed him. He saw himself filling in a HR complaint by hand. This had to be savored, too personal an experience to leave to the meaningless babbles of a keyboard. Insubordination. Poor work performance. Neglect of university property to boot. What if Joe had damaged that book on his way out? Alan's fault. All his fault. He settled down at his desk, squirming uncomfortably until he fit his bulk into the cheap office chair the department had provided him. Where to start? Probably with the damage to university property, something concrete that wouldn't require much investigation from HR. He set the book on the table reverently. The cover was plain black leather, cracked and worn with age. No title, no author, nothing on the spine. Joe opened the book gingerly. The first page was blank. Lines appeared on his brow. He flipped a page, blank, and another, blank. The book was blank throughout. Joe shut the covers, eliciting a cloud of dust. He sneezed. Strange, he thought. A notebook, perhaps? An empty notebook wasn't about to find its way into the university's collection. He powered up his computer and upon opening up his emails, discovered nothing new, apart from a reminder from IT to clear his inbox before he overshot his email quota. Odd. He'd always been particular about filing off his emails. He managed to find an email with Alan's latest progress report. Up to now, he'd been impressed with Alan's attention to detail. The man was thorough. He'd catalogued each digital edition obsessively. Physical descriptions, book length, authors. Joe soon realized the folly of his work. He had no information about the book whatsoever. In any case, why on earth would he be looking for a blank notebook in a catalog of books? The episode must have unbalanced him more than he cared to admit. Something had caught his eye, though the index, the catalog index, on the last book the team had worked on. He checked Alan's other email to be sure. The numbers lined up. Alan had sent him the last digital edition last night. He looked up the details of the catalog. Cover, black leather. Dates to mid-17th century based on the style of language used. Approximately 251 pages long. Author unknown, Title not specified. Something clicked. It had to be the same book. But the book on the table was empty. He picked it up again, looking closely at the pages. Handwritten, they had said. He could see the little indentations left behind, ghost words, as though someone had scrawled on the pages with a pen and no ink. So, a team, working on arguably the most boring task in the world, managed to mess up their work. Alan, waiting somewhere off the deep end, muddling around in the dark of his office. A 300-year-old book, one that had been read and digitized with nothing more than blank pages. This was turning out to be a bad day. Joe wondered what on earth the team had digitized if the book was empty. He brought up the file from the night before. He glanced at the meta information. Two hundred and ninety-three pages. Joe messaged his temples with his thumbs. It had to be a mistake. There were more pages in the digital edition than in the empty physical copy. Joe looked up at the text of the book. Except it wasn't the handwritten script of some long-dead hand. Arrayed before him was a mind-numbing array of symbols, odd geometric shapes juxtaposed with curling lines. His tongue dried as he drew shallow breaths through his open mouth. The symbols seemed to dance and writhe before him. He'd never seen this foreign alphabet before, yet they seemed to whisper to him. Couldn't make out what they said, but they hinted at some grotesque shape, amorphous, yet many-legged, curling and chittering beyond the range of his sight. It took a supreme act of will for Joe to close the document. He wiped his brow with his sleeve, unsurprised to see a damp spot left by his sweat. The light winked out from behind the screen, leaving nothing but his pale, staring visage, looking back at him in that dull black mirror. He left the empty book next to the screen and left his office for home. It was time to call it a night. Joe opened his eyes. He was sitting, cross-legged on the ground. Kim stood over him, her pudgy fingers locked under his chin. Her small fingernails dug into the flesh of his neck, feeling more like... Chitinous points, and Joe cared to admit. Joseph, you let her in. Joe couldn't speak. There was a gag in his mouth, a slippery rope or something similar, pulled taut. The air was thick with some metallic tang. Joe tasted the blood in his mouth. Uh, The rope was coated in it, blood. That was the smell, the whole room smelt of it. Gordon found her first, of all the places, trapped in a book. A book. She was practically a god, thousands of years old. Joe's torso ached terribly. Breathing came hard. His lungs struggled, fighting against a tight cage of bone and tendon. His hands were trapped, bound by the same slimy rope that gagged him. Kim leaned in, her pink fringe dangling from her scalp, brushing Joe's eyes. He blanked. Forgotten for years, the old man found her first, but his mind was too weak, too feeble for what she needed. We are different, young, strong, fertile minds. We will add our songs to hers. We nurse her young, we nurse them here. She tapped her skull with her free hand hard enough to produce dull thumps. Joe began to cough and retch, the gag in his mouth smothering him. He clenched his jaws, his teeth sawing at that spongy, cursed thing. Look at you, she said. Her face, near enough for him to smell her stale breath over the reek of the blood. Her eyes were glazed and unfocused, looking straight through him. She flexed her fingers, the points of her fingernails breaking the skin on his neck, eliciting a snort of pain from Joe. Weak, unworthy, she snorted, standing up and rubbing her hand on her thigh, as though to scrape away something dirty. He finally managed to spit the gag from his mouth. He felt the rope hit his lap with a dull, wet smack. He looked down, down at the gaping hole in his torso, the squirming, purplish mass of intestines spilling out onto his lap. He raised his wrists, saw his innards wrapped around them. Before he opened his mouth to scream, he followed the trail of viscera spread across the floor. There in the chaos, amidst heaving loops and whorls, he saw the letters of the book, pulsating with an obscene life as his last meal made its way through the bowels. Joe kicked off the sheets a sodden, sour-smelling mess. He rubbed at the gummy corners of his eyes with one hand, whilst the other kneaded the ample flesh around his midsection, squeezing it hard enough to hurt. He hadn't seen Kim in over a week. Why the unsettling dream, then? The light streaming through the window told him he had overslept, he was going to be late. He got into his office a little past ten. He settled down into his chair again and arched his back. The pops in his spine gave him no satisfaction. A cup of coffee sat on his desk, the white steam curling above the dark brown fluid. He began his daily ritual, hoping that the smooth flow of routine would soothe his mind. Empty inbox. Nothing except another reminder from IT to clear his emails. Odd. He hadn't received anything since Alan's message. They were being overly enthusiastic again. Still troubled by his dream, he searched for the offending message. The events of the day before must have spooked him enough to bring on that nightmare. Dredged out of the depths of his subconscious... Paused, his finger almost clicking the mouse. The file sat there, a smug little paperclip at the bottom of the email. Joe could almost see the symbols in front of him again, hear that mad chittering at the edge of his hearing. Something was out of place. It took him a while to get it. The email from IT, the inbox, the attachment... The attachment had grown. It was bigger than it was when Alan sent it to him. Impossible. He opened the digital edition again to see what he already knew. The number of pages had increased. The book was growing. He scrolled through the document. The symbols came to life. Crawling up the screen like a horde of many-legged insects... The undulating wave gave him a sudden bout of nausea. He got to the end of the book. He didn't have to look closely to find the familiar sequence of loops and whirls from his dream at the end of the book. He picked up his phone and dialed his assistant. Did you get me Kim on the line? He brought his coffee to his lips. There was silence. He lowered the cup. Did you hear me? I asked you to help me call Kim. Oh, Mr. Robinson, hasn't anybody told you yet? Miss Eccles passed away. It was in the news yesterday. Someone found her two days ago. He hissed as the hot coffee sloshed over the rim, burning his fingers and splashing onto the table. They don't think she was murdered. Folks on the news said there was a huge mess in the apartment. She'd taken a knife to herself. All the doors and windows were locked from the inside. His assistant was babbling. Joe lowered his scalded finger down to the table, swirling it around in the puddle of coffee without looking. So nobody got out and in for a few days. She spoke faster and faster, the words rushing out, nearly incoherent. They say her dog must have been starving, considering what it did to her body. Two days. She'd been dead two days. His assistant was still going on about it, but it was just a wave of noise. Without a word, he set the phone down, gulping down a deep, rattling breath to try and calm himself. He suppressed a shriek upon seeing the twisting symbols rendered in coffee upon his table. Joe gathered up his coat. He was going to speak to Alan again. There was no answer from behind the cheap plywood door. Joe tried the office line and Alan's mobile. Nothing there, either. The door still wasn't locked. The scene beyond the door was exactly the same as before. Mountains of books blocked Joe from looking further into the room. As if reluctant to venture deeper, the harsh fluorescent lighting from the hallway struggled to reach beyond the vicinity of the threshold. The light switch still wasn't working. This was a mistake. He turned to leave. Joe, hey, buddy. Joe froze. There was that same breathy, unearthly quality to Alan's voice. Alan gave a little hiccuping giggle. Hey, man, come on in. Don't be shy. Joe stepped across the threshold. The room seemed cooler than a corridor outside. Close the door. It'll be easier for us to talk. Your lights are out, Al. I can't see a thing. I see all I need to see. It'll be better for you this way. Last chance. Make a break for the door, Joe thought. Head straight back to the office, burn the book, remove all traces of the digital edition from his computer, and forget that any of this ever happened. The click of the door shutting had a certain finality to it, as though he closed off more than the rest of the hustle and bustle of the university. Maybe he left the last vestiges of normality outside. Only madness remained. You're doing fine there, buddy. Just take two steps forward. Good. Now another three steps to your right. Mind the books. We can talk now. Joe swept his hands in front of him. The center of the office had been cleared of furniture. He wandered forward, shuffling his feet across the carpeted floor, a resounding hiss accompanying each and every footfall. His probing fingers met the wall. Why'd you send me the book, Al? Because only you could have done what I wasn't allowed to. That was the point. The person that you are. Timid. Think you're in control. Little man in big shoes. I need to know what the symbols mean. What are they doing to me? The room fell silent. Joe took a single deep breath and held it till his lungs seemed fit to burst, and the blood pounded in his ears. "'You read it?' "'Yes.' That is over. I failed.' "'What was I supposed to do?' Alan snorted, "'Nothing special. Do what she wouldn't let me. Follow your routine.' ''Hide in your little shell, department head. Never open attachments. File them away. Delete her.'' ''Who are you talking about? Kim told me about her.'' ''Kim told you nothing. She's the one that was in the book. The one that's living in your computer now.'' ''How can a person live in a book?'' ''Not a person. Gordon found her first in some musty old tome. She isn't human.'' She's something else, something worse. You know what I think? I think she's more like a virus. Do you know how viruses work? Like germs? More than that, buddy. We don't know whether they're alive or not, just some DNA in a little package. Pure information, man. Genetic information that gets into a cell and changes your behavior. Makes the cell birth more viruses. That's what I think she is. She's in my head now, in all our heads. That's what they did, found a way to reduce something to its essence, an idea. An idea reduced into writing. The book wasn't full when the professor found it. She's changing me, I can hear her. And there's something more, I think she's growing. Pages keep getting added, even while we were converting it. Pages kept filling up. Alan's voice seemed to come from everywhere at once. Joe ran his fingers up the wall, they came away wet and gummy. He knew what coated the wall without having to smell his fingers. What happens in the end? I don't know. My journey is already over. Joe groped blindly about the room, using his fingers as a guide against the wall. His foot thumped against something heavy. He kneeled down. Why the lights, then? Joe's hand brushed against something slick and clammy. When he found his fingers at the end of it, he jerked his hand back. The lights are already on, Joe. You see what I see. We're all together in her now. We bleed into each other. I'm done. It's up to you now. I'll see you soon. Joe winced as the world went white. Colors and lines slowly came back into focus. The walls were covered, floor to ceiling, in the same twisting, obscene symbols. Some were still dripping. The smell of blood was overwhelming. Along with the symbols came a mad, scrabbling whisper. Something in the letters was alive. A terrible, inhuman intelligence... He put his hands over his ears. It didn't work. The sounds were coming from inside. "'She's inside you now,' he heard Alan say again. Joe had to look away from the walls. When he saw what was lying on the floor, he had to bite the inside of his cheek to keep from crying out. Alan was sprawled on the floor. Joe couldn't help but stare at the man's lips, hoping to see some signs of life. From those purplish flaps, Alan must have been dead for some time. Long gashes crisscrossed his arms, the oldest already scabbing over. Joe knew where Alan had found the blood to write on the walls. You see what I see, Alan had said. It was dark for Alan. Impenetrably dark, because Alan couldn't bear to look at the writhing letters either. Joe knew why he saw nothing, because Alan saw nothing, because Alan lay there, supine and slack-jawed, weeping tears of blood from empty eye sockets, a never-ending scream upon his lifeless face. It was late when the police finished up with Joe. He'd left out all the details about the symbols and the damnable digital edition on his computer. He had other plans for the book. He could feel her there, coiled in the back of his brain. The symbols were starting to crop up everywhere he looked. Closing his eyes didn't help. Even then, he could see them, as if they'd been seared into the back of his eyelids could still hear the drone of incomprehensible sounds over the nighttime noise of a busy city. He found his office unlocked. When he entered, he discovered why. The last of her children were waiting for him. Gordon The small man was in Joe's chair, facing away from the door. The light gleamed off his scalp, visible through his thinning hair, All Joe could see was the top of Gordon's head and his pale forearm on the armrest of the chair, coated with a sheen of fresh blood. Beneath the wash of crimson, darker lines and curves were etched deep into Gordon's skin. Gordon grunted as he spun around to face Joe. Joe's back hit the door as he took an involuntary step back. Every visible inch of the man's skin was covered in lines of bloody script. The stains on his t-shirt and trousers told Joe that the carvings weren't limited to exposed skin. Light glinted off the smile of the straight razor that Gordon was tapping on the armrest. The low whispering started up again. Joe shook his head, trying to clear it. "'What are you doing here, Gordon?' The door only opened inwards. Joe would have to step closer to Gordon if he wanted to escape. "Mm, You been to see Alan? Alan's dead. It's part of her now. None of her children truly die. But he was a bad child, wasn't he? Gordon fixed his beady eyes on Joe. You're going to try to do it, aren't you? Joe stood transfixed by the rhythmic movement of the razor. The symbols on Gordon's skin seemed to squirm and flow, scurrying up his sleeves and out again like a horde of insects. When Gordon spoke, the crazed whispers rose to a crescendo, buttressing his words. Except, was it really Gordon speaking, or was it her speaking through Gordon? I need her out of my head. I can still do it. I can save us both. The springs in the chair groaned as Gordon pushed himself up. The edge of the razor bobbed and weaved in the air in front of Joe. How little you understand, afraid to be part of something greater than yourself for once. The blade drew near. I had my words to her song. It wasn't enough to use a pen and paper. I tried. Oh, no. Not enough at all. This is better. Our flesh sings with her, and you would try to end all of this. It was getting too close. Joe had to make a break for it. A moment's hesitation and all was nearly lost. The little snake of a man saw Joe tense up, and that was all the invitation he needed. He sprang across the room, barreling at Joe. Together they tumbled, a tangle of limbs and snarling curses Gordon, being the more nimble of the two, quickly got the upper hand. Joe wound up on his back, and Gordon straddled him, drawing wide arcs of pain with the razor as Joe shielded his face with his arms. Foolish, the small man hissed, imagining you understand her glory. Picture her, envision her birthing a thousand young. Not from the weakness of the flesh, diseased and rotting its way slowly back to the ground. Gordon paused, beads of sweat forming constellations upon his forehead, a thick rope of drool suspended from his jaw. The symbols on his flesh swam and sang. He leaned down, looming over Joe, tapping his temple with the dull side of the razor. "'We will bear her children from here. Our minds will be her womb.' You see the words now, don't you? You only see what she wants you to see. Soon. Let me help you on your way. Gordon pressed his palm down, pinning Joe's forearms against his chest. The other arm lowered the razor. When the silver edge bit into the thick flesh on Joe's belly, he began to howl and thrash. He bucked like a branded bull. There was one thing Gordon hadn't counted on. Joe must have had a hundred pounds on that pot-bellied little monkey. The smaller man wobbled, flailing helplessly before finally pitching over. His skull hit the edge of Joe's desk with a fleshy thunk. Whatever manic strength possessed him obviously did not render him immune to pain. Gordon curled up into a ball, mewling and whining while he clutched his gushing scalp. Joe struggled to his feet. He took a short run up and swung the full weight of his leg into Gordon's midsection. He felt the air rush out of the other man as his foot made solid contact. The voices at the edge of his hearing surged forward. No longer whispers, but rather the deafening screech of an insane choir. He could run, he thought. Get out. Save himself. But not yet. There was something else to be done. He flicked the razor under a bookshelf with his toe and staggered over to his computer. Do what Alan asked him to do. Make it all stop. Make the pain stop. He punched in his password. His inbox sat before him. He blinked and rubbed at his eyes, leaving a smear of blood across his face. He watched as the letter Q lengthened, sprouted spindly legs and scuttled across the screen. The soft plastic bulged obscenely with its progress. All around it, letters were melting, the lines of text losing their veneer of familiarity. He was losing it. He squirmed his eyes shut and raked his fingers down the long, deep cuts on his forearm, hoping that the pain would bring him some focus. He squinted, the lines of the screen blurring and swimming. There, there it was. He moved his fingers in a familiar dance across the keyboard. The screen slowly came back into focus, an inhuman chorus fading back to silence. Had he won? Gordon groaned. No time. He snagged his mobile phone off the table and quickly left his office, dialing for the police as he went. The little man got to his feet. Joe had done a real number on him. He had no idea why she had summoned him there. He didn't know how badly he had been hurt. She had some plan, some greater design. He felt the symbols on his body shift and twist. Sometimes he could almost see her shape, that of a long, sinuous, many-legged whore. He imagined her curled around his brain stem, her needle-like appendages, stroking his thoughts like the gentle fingers of a lover. "'Come,' she said. "'Come and see how it begins.' He held two scarred forearms against his belly as he stumbled towards the computer. The fat man hadn't won. Far from it. He saw his mother sitting there, a simple computer icon, bulbous and pregnant with promise." Before his eyes, he watched the size of the file waver and grow. Bigger. It flowed again, bigger still. He bared his teeth, whether in a smile or a rictus of pain. He he knew not. Never again. Never again to be trapped. My song will be heard everywhere in this age. I have so much to show you all. What could that obese dolt give her that he could not? A university department head was nothing when compared to her glory. But there were things the fat man could do, things that even a devoted son like Gordon could not. Then he saw it, what she wanted all along. Her design, grand and beautiful. To coax, to shuttle the silly man down this path. In the distance, sirens wailed, coming closer. A fresh email from IT appeared in Joe's inbox. They were beyond caring about the swelling file on the server. No, they were more interested in why a department head would abuse his access rights to the university-wide mailing list. Gordon was content. He sat back in the chair, running his fingers down the burning text... On his arms as he waited
1: for the end. True Scary Story is a podcast about personal, terrifying stories dealing with the paranormal. True accounts from people who live through strange and supernatural experiences, told directly by them. My name is Edwin Covarrubias. And for years i have been listening to stories from people who have shared their most frightening true experiences with me there was one story recently called there's something in the closet where juanita tells us about her experiences growing up in a house where she would see objects physically move on their own but the rest of her family would act as if nothing was happening it wasn't until years later that she found out what the source of it all was which makes me wonder if you were to witness a haunting Who would believe you? Come find True Scary Story by typing it into your app right now. I'll see you over there on True Scary Story. I hope you enjoyed Digital Edition
2: as written by L. Chan and performed by Otis Jiry. If you enjoyed that last tale, I personally want to encourage you to check out Mr. Jiry's podcast, Scary Stories Told in the Dark now in its seventh season and available on apple podcasts spotify stitcher and wherever else you can listen to and subscribe to your favorite storytelling programs or visit simplyscarypodcast.com and visit our shows page and you'll find it there each of otis's seven seasons has 24 episodes so if you're new Oh boy, do you have a lot of catching up to do. (laughs) If you enjoy what you hear, please leave Otis a kind word and a five-star review on the app of your choice. And let him know you heard about him here on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. It would mean a lot to the both of us. And besides that, Otis is a fantastic guy. Up next, we've got a third and final dose of darkness for you. In the form of a tale from author Rachel Wesley and it's brought to life by voice actress Jordan Lester. In it, we'll learn that not only can looks be deceiving, so can voices. Without further ado, I present to you, Mimic.
5: I live right next to a Navajo reservation and have made friends with many of the people there my age. We like to hang out, Play video games, and just be normal teens. I walk over a lot, since my best friend lives a little less than a mile away from me. This isn't a long trek, and usually only takes me about 25 to 30 minutes. I've made this trip dozens of times, and have grown very comfortable with it. I know the people along the way, so I'm not scared or on edge. There is a patch of forest, however, about midway there. It's a little unnerving sometimes. There's always that feeling of being watched. This was a regular occurrence for me, so I tried to just ignore it and shake it off as my mind playing tricks on me. This day, I spent more time at my friend's house than I meant to, and when I left, it was already getting dark. I reached the stretch of forest, right as the sun disappeared from the sky. I shivered a little as I readied myself to begin the journey through. I was ten steps in when I heard a branch snap. You know the sound, the one that screams, there is definitely someone or something there with you. I froze, not sure what I should do next. Should I run? Should I turn around and book it back to my friend's house? I didn't know the best option in this situation. I whispered, Hello? My voice cracking as the words fell from my lips. I don't know why I even opened my mouth, but it was out there, so I listened for any reply. My heart sank when the answer came back in the sound of my voice. Hello? I started to breathe too fast. My heart pounded against my chest. I felt like I might faint. Hello? Hello? my voice came again but not from my mouth i wanted to run but my feet felt cemented to the ground i couldn't scream i couldn't reply as my voice echoed over and over from a short distance away i couldn't pinpoint exactly where it was coming from it sounded like it was everywhere around me hello 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 It repeated. Stop it! I finally managed to tear from my lips. Everything went silent. For a seemingly endless minute, nothing happened. The air grew stale, and I realized for the first time that there were no typical forest sounds. There were no bugs, no frogs or crickets. Nothing. I stood there, terrified, waiting to see what would happen next. Stop it, it mimicked back. I'd had enough, and was willing my heavy legs to move. Before I could take a step, I heard rustling in the bushes twenty feet to my left. I watched in horror as a deer head with huge antlers protruded through the brush. As it came further out and stood up on twos, I took off. I flew out of those woods and all the way home in record time. I said nothing to my mom when I got there. I just went up to my room, laid down, and thought about what happened. My mother came in at some point and asked me if everything was all right. I replied that yes, I was just tired i don't know why i didn't tell her i guess i might have been afraid of how she would react i called my friend and told him everything he freaked out and told me that no matter what happened that night not to reply or look out my window this terrified me even more he said to call him the next morning and he would explain more and that he had to speak to his grandfather as soon as possible. That night, I didn't sleep. At all. I stayed awake, listening to every little sound the night brought. Around 3 AM, just as I was about to drift off, the air... changed. And the night sounds quieted. I felt my heart begin to pound. I lay there, waited, pulling the covers up over my head like a child, far too scared to move. Hello? I cried after a long moment of stillness. It was all I could do. Hello? Stop it! It said mockingly, mimicking what I'd said in the woods again. It was terrifying enough when it copied what I said, but then... It did something new. It called my name. Amy? My mother's voice. Amy? Amy? Come here. Hello? Stop it! My voice again. For the rest of the night... The creature outside my window called my name in my mother's voice and repeated what I said in the woods over and over. In the morning, when the sun broke through the dark, it finally stopped. I fell into a fitful sleep. I woke around noon to my friend calling to tell me he had spoken to his grandfather and could explain what happened to me. He said there was a creature they called Yi he who goes on all fours, or a skin walker. He explained that it was an evil witch that used dark magic to transform into an animal with the attributes it required, and that it had caught my scent and knew me now. He also warned me that since it knew me now, that it would always follow me, that I would always have to be careful. Last night, I heard scratching on my window, then a low hum. The creature began saying my name again, but also adding in things I hadn't said, all in my mother's voice. At one point, it started Calling my name, drawing it out, slowly. Amy... It called. It tried to get me to come outside, or to open the door and let it in my house. This went on all night. I feel like I've gone crazy. Somehow, I've been told I'm supposed to deal with the fact that some thing is going to stalk the shadows around me for the rest of my life. I can't take that. I just can't. Someone, anyone, please help me. The sun is beginning to set and I know it's out there, waiting for me in the dark. I'm begging you, please help me.
2: I hope you enjoyed mimic as written by rachel wesley and voiced by jordan lester thank you for joining us for tonight's program as a reminder take a moment to stop by our itunes page and leave us a five-star review and a kind word and to follow us on facebook twitter and instagram and of course subscribe to us on youtube where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. and please consider signing up as a patron at our website ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Steve Taylor. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Logo by Craig Groshek. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions. including those you've heard on this program. We'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right, who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>